we have these board meetings so then we could document and learn about them. For example, uh, I'm able to use the information that I learned from law school, you know, creating bylaws, what type of structure and infrastructure are you going to have for a non-for-profit? You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla Denagno, a 2015 law school graduate. This episode is brought to you by me. <laughs> Seriously, I'm selling merchandise at shopyouarelawyer.com. That's where you can find water bottles, long and short sleeve t-shirts, and everything you need to support the You Are Lawyer podcast. So support your favorite lawyer's favorite podcaster and visit shopyouarelawyer.com to grab some merchandise. So welcome to the You Are Lawyer podcast, Samora Lebro. Thank you. Glad to be <laughs> here. Thank you for the invitation, Kyla. Yeah, of course. So Samora, you and I went to law school together. And I have to say this off jump. It's a great privilege to speak to you. Samora has seen me through craziness. And now here we are on the other side of law school. Okay, so Samora, I know a ton about you, but the audience does not. Please spend a couple minutes and tell everyone where you're from, why you went to law school. Hi, everyone. My name is Samora Legro. Uh, I'm originally from New York, born and raised in Harlem. Uh, my family's from Haiti. So uh, family was always important to me growing up uh, with my younger sister, parents, a uh, big group of cousins, grandparents. Um, those traditional values were always a part of my process. So uh, when you start to learn and observe, you know, I went to the Browning School from the 7th to 12th grade, and then afterwards went to Vanderbilt. And in my sophomore year, I had an opportunity to start working with Michael Lasher, who is a parent from the Browning School. And, you know, he gave me an opportunity to start clerking at his law firm. You know, I've worked there during the summers and uh, anytime I had a break. And, you know, as the steps start to, I guess, climb up the mountain, he would present me with more difficult uh, assignments. And, you know, he gave me a 300 page packet one day and I was able to find some important information. And he said, you know what, kid, you have something. And, you know, once I started to learn about what the sword and shield could also do, I saw how it was a way to help and protect people, um, especially with an elderly grandma, uh, grandmother who just turned 100 years old. But uh, back in 2008, 2009, uh, I had the opportunity to work at his law firm full time after graduating in 2007. And, you know, one of the most interesting cases was actually more like social work. And, you know, Miss Pratt was about to get evicted from her apartment. And the reason was because she was suffering from cancer. And because she was going through chemo, she was no longer able to work. And when she came to the law firm, she really needed some help and some attention. And while speaking to uh, Felicia Klein Fisher, who was another mentor and uh, attorney who I knew, uh, she enabled me to work more closely with Ms. Pratt and learn more about the social work system, but then also how to, you know, assemble documents and bring up evidence and show reasons as to why somebody really needs help. So because somebody was incapacitated and debilitated, uh, we were able to help her get a one-shot deal. 
we're able to now move this person and help her find a new place and better healthcare to support her. And, you know, after learning about the gratification of being able to not only learn more and help someone else, I was really motivated to go to law school. And at the time I was evaluating different opportunities and uh, had a conversation with Chancellor Pierre from Southern University Law Center. When I learned about this opportunity to learn about the Louisiana Civil Code, which also governs other areas of the world, I knew that this was a great way to potentially enhance my international interests and fields of work. So yeah, that's the short answer as to why I was interested in going to law school. Okay, very cool. You said you were seeing how social work and kind of the law kind of intermixed. Did you study social work? Like, was that your major when you were in undergrad or? No, but political science was. Okay. And as you start to look at policies and how they study and affect people and the statistics that you accumulate for particular demographics, uh, one common denominator as somebody whose family is from Haiti is that, you know, there are other areas, especially in the Western Hemisphere, countries that are clear as night and day with the wealth poverty gap uh, that exists. And when you have opportunities to bridge the gap and also help people in your community and around you, it became an important tool and resource, you know, even, you know, speaking to people in my neighborhood, um, the law is a way to help protect me. Um, I think we've talked about this, especially while being in Louisiana, sometimes you get pulled over and stopped by police officers and you don't even know the protocol for how to present yourself, um, how to remain calm, uh, hands on the wheel. You know, I have a copy of the constitution on my windshield just to make sure that there is an ele elevated level of conversation and I'm not categorized as a potential suspect just because of my physical manifestations. Yeah, absolutely. Where I'm from, it is a driving city, but Baton Rouge is a completely driving city. I mean, you're like, okay, there are city buses, but they really just work in the city, not kind of where we were out in Scotlandville. And then we were really close to the airport, but the airport was like tiny. You know what I mean? We weren't even hearing planes going all night and like disrupting us. So Louisiana was just its own place. So the idea of getting pulled over when you're in this completely different culture, when you're in the South, right? I'm a Yankee. You're definitely a Yankee being from Harlem. Uh, what was it like when you were, when you made the decision, okay, I'm going to law school one, I'm going to law school in Louisiana. What was that like when you, I mean, did you have conversations about it? Or were you just like, okay, let's just move to Louisiana. Um, there were a number of internal conversations that I had uh, first with, the advisors and the team of mentors that were around me, you know, because this was a long-term project and it was a decision to work as a paralegal full-time before going into law school. So uh, one thing that I learned while going away to school at Vanderbilt was from 2003 to 2007, I was unplugged from what was going on in my neighborhood. I had to be fully vested into what I was doing and Win, lose, draw, you're learning so much. You're meeting new people, broadening your horizons, uh, experiencing new classes, meeting 
you know, professors who are world-renowned or publishing. Uh, it was very interesting to see how unplugging and fully committing in a new setting did not mean that I was always turning my back and looking to see what I needed to do. Uh, I, I became more of a decisive decision maker. And at, uh, at a different pace of the South, I also enjoyed you know, being in Louisiana, it was a bit of a culture shock as somebody who grew up across the street from a train station. So transportation was always big for me. Uh, but to be able to adapt, but also make some observations. I mean, I had a professor, Cleveland Kuhn, who was the first one to really highlight environmental justice and injustices. And we start to see that certain areas are either going to get the funding and the support for building infrastructure such as transportation, you see how it can make a huge difference. But you know what? I like to drive. So being in Louisiana wasn't a bad thing because I, I got a car when I was out there. And uh, it was a nice way to get around. But um, yeah, when I decided to commit to going to Southern, I remember speaking to different family members, but then you know, certain people who just said, you know, just go. And there are times where you can have every apprehension in the world and think about retaking this exam and that exam, but eventually you have to take the dive. And once you do, you fully commit and you know that, you know, you're going to take that journey and, and do the work. So yes, I will say that uh, Nelson Mandela's book, which is here also, Long Walk to Freedom was a lot of inspiration during that law school period, so. Yeah, definitely. I'm over here shaking my head because, you know, you can you can talk about things forever, but eventually you have to do some action. And so right. you were working as a paralegal. You said you were going to go to law school. You got into law school, so now what are you going to do, right? So we right. decided to go to law school. So when we were in law school, you and I met in the library, I believe, but one yes. of my really fond memories of us is always studying at the business school, Southern University. Yes. They would have their business school open on the weekends, open just wild hours, maybe even 24 hours a day. And we would show up, you know, 8 p.m. and know we're going to be there studying until 3 p.m. We had you, Anthony Stewart, some other people to walk us back to our cars and stuff just for protection because it was the middle of the night. And so when we were three L's, I ran for editor-in-chief of the law school newspaper, The Public Defender, and you were one of the contributing writers on the newspaper. And I remember you wrote an article about food deserts. Where did that interest come from? And are you still interested in kind of environmental food justice? Absolutely. Uh, one thing is that when I grew up in Harlem and I was also living in the Bronx, uh, you start to see what food is quality is like, especially for black and brown people or different uh, neighborhoods and different demographics, because why is there yellow five, red 40, green 12, high fructose corn syrup, and a lot of the foods that we eat? As somebody who is also a youth advisor with NAACP, I used to see kids, you know, not only in the groups, but I would observe them on the train. So sometimes kids would be eating candy in the morning you know, or drinking a bottle of Coca-Cola. And I'm thinking, how many grams of sugar does this kid have? How much kinetic energy does this kid have before seven, eight o'clock? You know, is this kid eating nutritious breakfast? So, um, you know, as somebody who always biked, played soccer, basketball, I was always aware uh, of my health. And, 
you know, after sustaining an injury when I was in Louisiana, I, I noticed that my body had changed drastically. And a lot of that had changed because not only the activity level and commitment that you pay and spend to study the law, but then also the, the food that's around you. Um, so, you know, I am down 47 pounds from what I was in law school and I feel healthy and I feel more conscious and aware of eating, you know, more plant-based foods, you know, more fresh fruits and vegetables because we only get one body and, uh, you know, rest in peace to our friend D'Angelo Frazier, but we've also lost friends uh, due to health issues, you know, under the age of 40. I also had a friend, uh, Jamel Ahmed, who had passed uh, before age of 40. And uh, recently I attended a funeral for somebody, again, under 40. And uh, after a while you start realizing, yeah, we could do all this work, but if we neglect our physical and mental health, then you know we may be doing ourselves a disservice in the long run. Um, but then also, you know, while I was at Southern, having a professor like uh, Cleveland Kuhn, who let me know about administrative law and what happens at the ground level and at local elections and, you know, what are your senators and members of legislature supposed to be doing? So, yes, we could learn about all these different classes, but then there was a level of accountability that came with learning about not only the food, but then, you know, almost food discrimination. Why does a certain area not be able to get, you know, FDA approved food or why isn't it the, the healthiest or the best quality or is the most pesticides or uh, the most GMOs, uh, you know, and one thing that hit home was uh, when I went to Haiti uh, in 2018, you know, I had chicken and it was free range chicken, but when you defeathered the chicken, it was about the size of my palm. So when you see chicken at the grocery store that is two times bigger, and then you start looking at the health of black people. So who has diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues? Um, the list goes on and on. Gout, I mean, and, and the number of cancers associated to, you know, either, you know, genetically predisposed uh, issues but then also things that can happen in your area. So when we were also down there, we were in Cancer Alley. So if you know that your air quality is going to smell a certain way, if there's going to be fracking in your water uh, or potential contamination, and do you notice a change in your breathing? Yeah, you, you start to think about these things and that happens more and more, unfortunately, when you lose people who are close to you. So. Yeah, definitely. It was it was its own place. I mean, I went to Louisiana originally wanting to do environmental law, and Baton Rouge has the third largest Exxon plant in the world. And so I was like, oh, this is a great place to be. You know, I ended up working with the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality because that was what I wanted to do. So if you were coming there for policy, for administrative law, types of things that you're talking about, yeah, it was a great place to be but also you were subjected to living there as well, right? All of the, the environmental things, the lack of fresh produce. I mean, you could find grocery stores, but they were far. And again, it was, you you would have to travel a good 20 minutes, at least Yeah, 15. not walking distance. Oh no, definitely not, definitely not. So Samora, is there anyone in your family that is 
interested in law, that was involved in law, anything like that, that may have inspired you to want to be a lawyer? Yes. Uh, you know, when I was much, much younger, I learned more about my grandfather. And fortunately, it passed uh, 1992. But uh, Max Cadet was not only a lawyer and a judge, but he was also a dentist. And to see the malleability with his education and the opportunities that opened up, it was always inspiring because he also sent his kids abroad with student visas. So the pursuit of education uh, and the law ties into so many different areas because as we had discussed with you know, administrative law, environmental law, we're learning where there are topics where the dots connect and being able to align those is, is important. So when you look at your family history and you also see that you have, you know, I have uncles, you know, who I used to observe when I was younger. And as you get older, you're learning more and more. And then you're learning about how you perform, how you behave, communicate, and, and most importantly, how to write. So as somebody who always used to write in the, either in a journal or just to myself, I learned the importance of writing and the law. And over time, when I learned more and more about my grandfather, it's that inspiration comes in different phases. So from age 17 to 27 to 37, I could talk about the influence of family and pushing me along that, that path. And yeah. even after, um, you know, his children and, and my grandmother at the time, Therese Cadet, uh, had decided to open up a dental foundation in his name. And it's the Max and Therese Cadet Dental Foundation. And now as a member of the board, where we fast forward, uh, I'm able to use the information that I learned from law school. You know, I have uh, Professor Radcliffe, who's a another sharp professor who I had uh, business entities with. And not only are you learning about the duty of care and the duty of loyalty, but also you know, creating bylaws, what type of structure and infrastructure are you going to have for a not-for-profit, uh, a 501c3? So being able to not only have family who supported those endeavors, but also to go down to Southern, which is a HBCU, and also to see diverse professors, but also black and brown professors who are talking about these subjects and topics. Uh, that that felt like I was also around family because you see an older version of yourself in some of your professors, whether it's Professor Kuhn, uh, Professor Charbonnet, uh, Chancellor Pierre. Uh, these were all influential extensions of family once I started, started to look at role models and mentors who I could look up to. And, and I also had Professor Menser, Professor Gray, mm -hmm. Professor Perhey, Professor Wendy Shea. And uh, yeah, being at Southern also felt, I would say there was a homeliness that, that, that you can get there being at HBCU because yeah, we used to go to that business building at all hours because we had to be very competitive with, with that type of uh, legal education where we may also be the first generation learning about the law here. So it, it's a lot of legwork, so. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think it's pretty fascinating that your grandfather was a lawyer, judge, and a dentist. That's incredible. So this foundation that you opened, let's talk more about being a board member because board membership is shown all over TV. It's definitely in the show Succession, which is pretty recent. It was all over the show Suits. Like any of those legal shows, people are like, oh my God, you're on the board, you're on the board. Oh, it's so fancy. So what do you do as a board member and how do you use your law degree in that space? Well, I, I wanted to rewind because I personally didn't open it. I mean, it, it's so much teamwork that goes into it. Uh, I have to thank my mom, uh, who's the president, who has been working with this foundation for a long time. And, you know, it's the inspiration that you see with your family that influences you. So even from a young age, I used to see her involved with the day-to-day -day operations and contacting different de dentists. Uh, collecting dental equipment, shipping them down to Haiti, um, actually going down there to in Haiti with family. So that was a major influence, you know. It, it, so I've been down there, so it really touches home and it means a lot. But then also my Aunt Genevieve, who's actually on the ground in Haiti, who operates the Fondation Max Cadet in Port-au-Prince, in Canapé Vert. And she works with the medical director and she is in charge of so many different functions that we have these board meetings so then we could document and learn about them. For example, um, there are a number of people who needed surgeries for their jaws. You had people who would ride on mopeds, but then maybe not have the right headgear. So when they made contact with the floor, now a mandible's broken, right? And now how do you help these people? How do you advocate for these people? Um, another thing is that there was a, you know, we had a 13 and 15 year old girl who had uh, tumors in their mouths. And for people who neglect or don't get the proper dental care on time, and usually it could be an affordability or access issue, um, she had to get these tumor removed. And there were surgeries that were done, the people who had these tumors in their mouth experienced bleeding. And when you start to have issues, especially in your mouth, they can expand and really harm other areas if you don't take care of them. So being in a place where you know, I can advocate for people, I can't emphasize how important classes like trial advocacy and, and learning how to document and, and you know, even mediation uh, and learning how to discuss and, and speak to people, you know, and learn about a problem. Professor Alvin Washington did such a great job of pinpointing problems and analyzing them that, you know, it gave me the confidence to now discuss the root cause of the problems. Doing that root cause analysis now enables you to really uh, address and attack the advocacy that's needed for somebody who who is in dire need of these medical procedures. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that you were watching your mom and your aunt running the foundation, keeping it going. Well, the new um, development is that uh, I was able to bring in a colleague from law school. That was okay. Mike Beeler. Uh, so you remember Mike from Southern of University. Course. And he has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the not-for-profit space. And this is an area that he worked in prior to working in law school. And also afterwards. And while I spoke to him, 
you know, I was speaking to family about the team that we'd be assembling. And I also have my aunt, uh, Micheline. We all go on first name basis though when we're working on a board level, but uh, my aunt is a retired teacher and, and her experience and understanding of what students need and what families need is important. And also as somebody who speaks Haitian Creole, preservation of the language is so important because now you can communicate with the people. So to be able to travel to a country and, you know, when I visited when I was 13, I, I went with family before. And, you know, one thing that I was able to do is, is we had a team from, you know, Bermuda and there's a language barrier. And the fact that I was able to speak French and English at the time and Haitian Creole and help the doctors translate, you know, whether it was something like, hey, lift your chin or put your head up or open your mouth. Um, these were simple instructions that I could assist with. So again, um, being able to work with this team, there's a lot of history. Uh, my cousin, Alex, uh, does marketing and web development. So he's able to create this awesome website for us and really show and advocate for us, being able to show the mission statement, the history, and also ways to donate. This is the ways that we can harness technology. And, you know, I also encourage so many people to also learn about the technological piece of your profession, because that's what's necessary in 2023. Every profession that you have has some computer piece or element, some tech element. So um, being able to adapt and also help assemble a team. I met uh, Dr. Gordon Frazier uh, last year and he's a periodontist in Atlanta who now has a particular area of special expertise where you know, he has sent us videos of him demonstrating how people should properly clean their teeth. You know, um, Dr. Betty Noel, she's another doctor who's also a scientist who understands not only organization, infrastructure, but then how do you advocate for people, especially people who, you know, need help. But then how do you also bridge gaps from an intergenerational perspective? Because we have clients who range from young kids to, you know, teenagers, to adults, to people more senior. So how do you have that range? So having people who also work in education is important, but also uh, Dr. Benjamin Medina, who is a Filipino dentist, um, can also speak to me at high levels. You know, I, I just got my teeth clean and I was talking to him about the need for the dental clinic and how we are fundraising and whether it's our website or GoFundMe, it's important to advocate again. I, I'm learning new vocabulary in this position as a board. So I'm also constantly doing homework. And um, I think going to law school makes, I think everyone an avid reader, but also we're wordsmiths. So we are constantly adding new vocabulary and language to our arsenal so that we can use our sword and shield and, and, and help people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of times we become avid readers and we are naturally curious. We just want to know, right? And that 
it propels us as we're doing all those research assignments. When I think back to you talking about being a paralegal and they kept giving you more stuff and they're like, okay, you're digging into it, you're getting it. Um, so it sounds like advocacy is a big part of your role. So Samora, what advice do you have for law students or young lawyers? So five years or less out of law school about how they can use their degree to advocate in any space. First and foremost, you have to learn how to advocate for yourself. Um, when we are students, uh, we lose a certain capacity, uh, not only to work full time, but to earn and make a living. So it becomes very necessary for you to learn how to advocate for yourself. Depending on life circumstances, there are curveballs that come where now your family may be tapping into you for maybe some advice or, you know, at least some guidance so then you can point them in the right direction, right? And you understand, you know, and we've talked about this, how it's also very important to set boundaries with your advocacy. So sometimes it's okay to say, hey, no, I'm not an expert in that area. I can refer you to somebody. Uh, and that's a great way to also harness your network. It is amazing how many people you start to meet and once they learn about your ability to advocate for yourself, whether it's verbally or writing or reaching out to other people or going somewhere in person, it's important. You know, uh, for me, the, one of the simplest things uh, was showing up to court anytime I had a, a ticket, a traffic ticket or something. You have to advocate for yourself in front of a judge and to be able to get a number of you know, issues dismissed over the years was really important. Um, you also can learn about, you know, how you can help for me at, at a board level, but then there are also community boards and local groups. For me, locally, there's the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition, um, and they operate in a way that really raises awareness about voter power, um, health and justice and what's going on. There's also an armory project that's happening. And, you know, while showing up at some of these public meetings, they, they were taking place at local public schools, you know, in an annex building of uh, Monroe College. Uh, PS340 is another location. So when I went to these meetings on Saturday, I was able to speak and, and also listen. And, and it's so necessary to listen because as, as we learned in law school, what is the call of the question? So when you listen, you also get to hear the problem. And during that process of listening and jotting things down, you, you're breaking down a rubric for a solution. And it's, it's so important. I look at these skills, especially when it comes to, you know, shout out to Professor Shields for legal research also. When you have to research, that enables you to advocate. Okay, there, there are facts in law that you either know or you don't know. Same thing with policies, that it is important to do your homework and your research so that you can go into these spaces knowing what to do. So regardless of being junior, that's another thing. There was a range of lawyers sometimes in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and you don't know who you're going to be interacting with, but going to law school gives you the capacity and the confidence to speak to just about anyone and in a professional and respectful manner. So 
it is important to be able to speak to people because then while I'm listening to the need for, you know, an armory building to be reconstructed and how can it help the community? I'm thinking about, oh yeah, Professor Charbonnet talked about this as construction law. And he talked about a critical, critical path method, which is a 12 to 14 step process for conducting a construction project. And by attending these meetings and casually discussing some of these topics, because you saw the work that we had to do in order to remember this information. When you are bringing it to different people at the local level, all of a sudden you sound like one of the more knowledgeable people or, or sources of information. So what ends up happening is that from an advocacy perspective, you become somebody that people can rely on. And, and it is a pleasure and honor to be able to have earned that Juris Doctorate and be able to really break down problems like a doctor would and, and really analyze and have a formulaic way. So. Uh, of going about a process. So if you want to advocate for yourself, your family, uh, people at your job, your own business, uh, the environment, your school, there are ways to do it. Yeah. But you got to start with advocating for yourself. So that makes sense. Absolutely. Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite experiences with Professor Charbonnet, I took construction law you know, I'm fascinated learning about how you have to take these tree stumps out of like airplane, like runways, because it eventually will compound. But for extra credit, he told us to watch My Fair Lady. And then, you know, he was going to ask a question about it or something. And I was like, I watched the show. I literally watch that movie once a year. It is like <laughs> become my favorite movie because it's all about words. He was obsessed with words. This guy was teaching that, you know, he was studying dialects. I had never seen the movie. I've seen it twice live. Well, let me say that better. I've seen it live two times because I felt I fell in love with it when I was in law school. I was like, wow, look at this. So, you know, he probably doesn't even know that that's his legacy. <laughs> People are in different states talking about him making us uh, watch that movie. But, yeah, the things we learned in law school, they definitely stayed with us. So... How can we get involved with this project? Well, first, uh, check out the website, which is cadetdentalfund.com, and it will show you the homepage, the information about Relais France Europe, which is our French counterpart. Um, there's the About page, which gives some background. You can also see more information about the missions that we've done, the testimonials, and where you can also donate. And uh, this is a nice central location. Feel free to also contact me at slegros123 at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a cadet dental fund at gmail.com uh, email address. So if there are any questions, any inquiries, we do get people who we're either retired dentists or who know people in their networks who are interested in giving back in different ways. So uh, we've worked with the robotics team and, and we're in the process of developing uh, potential technology. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but th this is yeah. an exciting time. So yeah, stay tuned uh, for the things that we post online. Okay. 
So I'll make sure that I put the website and your email address on the screen for everyone that's watching on YouTube. You can see that. If you're listening through the podcast, I will include Samora's email address and the website in the episode notes. Okay. So Samora, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience about any projects or anything that you're working with? Absolutely. Uh, So the other passion project that I have is the Panther Mentors. and uh, The Browning Panther Mentors are is a group of black alum, and, and we're a diverse group, um, but we started with a group of us who were trying to solve and navigate some issues that were happening back in 2020. Uh, during the Black Lives Matters uh, movement, there were a lot of black ad accounts for students and alumni who were at certain academic institutions who had negative experiences. And at the time, you know, people were talking about a number of different schools and our alumni group hadn't done anything yet. And I started to get texts about, hey, you know, what are we going to do? And um, at one point, Dr. John Body, who was the head of the school at the Browning School, invited 18 of us for a Zoom call to discuss issues that were going on, uh, our experiences. And in the process, I noticed that there was 50 years of experience. You know, we, we got to meet Dennis Coleman, who was the first black graduate from that private school from the class of 1972. Uh, Clan Denon, uh, they, you know, Larry, there are a bunch of guys, but they're also people who were at school during the time I was there, uh, Nate Garcia, uh, Greg Springer, Brian McGurk, and, and uh, you know, Desmond Lewis, a number of us had teamed up, Ralph Laboisier, um, and you know, I talked to Nate about what we could do, and we had options, and I spoke to a mentor, uh, Mr. Ken Marable, who runs DAIS, which is Diversity Awareness Initiative for Students, and uh, he and his wife, Joan Marable, have been running this for years. And I used to actually be a participant and facilitator uh, when I was in high school and then continued after school. I also had my first black professor, uh, Mr. Johnny Cook, who you know, had shared so much wisdom. And when I talked to him about what was going on, he said, well, if you guys are going to badmouth this process, you know, don't include my name in it. It was very profound to me because then I said, you know what? Well, let me take a bird's eye view of what we have at the table. And to be able to work with a gentleman who was a Pfizer scientist who helped figure out milliliters and dosages of the vaccination to help so many people. Um, and there were lawyers who have experience working in finance, and people working in you know, government affairs and the comptroller's office and assistant principals. Wait a second, I I was with an academic dream team who could help create and solve problems, you you know, create solutions and really solve the problems that were ahead of us. And the number one thing that Mr. Cook told me was that, you know, these kids need mentorship, you know. I get it, you guys may feel a certain way, but how do you help these kids and help them grow and develop, so. Uh, became a very unselfish project where we were working with different levels of the administration, um, 
you know, Bobby, Mark was great with helping us navigate how to create a scholarship fund and, and just learning these skills have now helped us, you know, not only, you know, help kids go through school. So being able to see that two, two kids have been able to now, you know, attend a different experience. And, and I'm glad that they were able to, you know, compete and go to this, uh, to the Browning school, but then also to have this fabulous network of people who, you know, we support each other, we check in, um, but we also have been there. So we can also tap on each other's shoulders um, and say, Hey, I need help with this or, Hey, how are you doing? And to know that we were able to work on a list of demands and, and really articulate what type of help people could need, you know, whether it's, you know, representation at the board level or uh, using NYU Steinhardt standard for cultural relevance. So being able to now affect the curriculum. Uh, this was another way to really tie in a lot of the organizational skills that we had learned from law school. Um, you know, get people lined up and, and figure out, you know, what's their contact information? How do you follow up? And how do you really put things on paper? Because that conversation could have ended after that, you know, that initial Zoom call. But uh, we wanted to be sure that we had brains that were going to pay attention to what we wanted to consciously create and what type of movement we wanted to build. So it's been yeah. a passion project. So you mentioned the Browning School before. Was that a high school or middle school or what kind of age group was that? So it's K through 12 okay. and I attended from seventh to 12th grade. Oh. Uh, but what was great too, is that last year I was able to visit in February and read to a kindergarten class, you know, and, and you know, communicate with kids who were in, you know, K through fourth grade. And, and one thing that I always learned was that, sometimes you need to see an older version of yourself. So when I had that, you know, someone like Greg Springer, you know, Ralph, Desmond, a lot of these guys were, you know, older and, and maybe we didn't communicate a lot when we were, you know, attending school because we were all so busy, you know, but when we did, yes, there was a sense of brotherhood and uh, to be able to reconnect the dots with them at this capacity has been, uh, a privilege that has now grown and has given me the confidence to do a number of other passion projects uh, because a lot of this work is also more advocacy work. Yeah, definitely. And what I appreciate about this conversation is you're even making me think about ways that I can give back more, right? Like all alumni, whether it's college, law school, you know, high school, elementary school can be like, oh, remember that? Oh, we hated that. Or, oh, this was terrible. Or but you can find a positive way or a way that you can give back to actually support and encourage the next generation. So I'm over here thinking, I'm like, I could do a scholarship. I should do like a podcast scholarship for my high school or something. You know what I mean? Or like teach a workshop or something. So that's a fantastic idea. And I would support it because when you're in school, you're not really paying attention to what's going on outside. Yes, you could be reading the news, but it's not until you're done with school that now you can say, wait a second, I have an impact on certain things, especially when you can harness your own dollars to help do the things, the passion projects that you want to do, and 
use your resources to be able to organize at different levels. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Samora. This was a pleasure. I appreciate talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure to you know reconnect the dots and uh, to also talk about the work with the Max and Sarah's Cadet Dental Foundation. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, you have a great day. You too. Thanks again. Uh-huh. Bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating, tell a friend about this podcast, and subscribe to the show so that you never miss a new episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.